Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. It's fair to say that there's not a lot of good news about at the moment, is there? Something to start off on a, on a bit of a down note. Um, many of the certainties that we in the West have put our trust in seem to be under threat, don't we? Um, the economic system that we rely on is failing people. Leaders at home and abroad are proving to be not up to the job. Um, the relative peace that we've seen in Europe since the Berlin Wall fell is probably under more threat than it's ever been since that day. And there's just a lot of uncertainty, isn't there, surrounding all of us um, in our personal lives and in the lives of other people around us. And it's all a bit depressing, isn't it? Um, But I do wonder if this is a moment, an opportunity, where God is going to do something through and in his people. Perhaps God is using this time, this season of uncertainty to show us that we're putting our faith in the wrong places. That the systems and the powers and the leaders that we maybe look up to and we, we think will secure us aren't actually deserving of our faith. I'm, I'm convinced more than ever that as Christians we need to be living and thinking and acting radically differently from everybody else in the world around us. And maybe this is just a wake-up call for us as a church to do just that to be totally different, to be totally transformed in how we do things for our own sakes, but also for the sakes of those who don't, let, who don't yet follow Jesus. Because how can we show them that he is better if we don't look like better than the ones that they're already living in ourselves? I wonder if we in the West have accepted, without really realising it, a type of Christianity that is bolted on to the lives that we're already living. So we follow Jesus, we go to church, we, we do some of the things, or all of the things that going to church might entail. We serve in voters, we give financially, we, um, we, we go to community group. Um, but our faith in Jesus is just added on to what we already have, and we do these things on top of everything that we do, rather than these things, rather than our faith and the outworkings of our faith being central to our very lives. Because when a gospel is central to our lives, then everything else in our lives reorientates itself in order to revolve around it. Is that true? Is that true of us? I'm going to have to move this before I break it. Sorry. I apologise to the worship leaders for messing up your system. Um, Is that true of us? Does the gospel lay at the centre of our lives? I've definitely been challenged about this recently in my own life. I have to say there are elements where it definitely doesn't. And I'm kind of realising that and being challenged on that. That maybe I'm letting the gospel revolve around other more important central pillars or things that are more important in my life than the gospel. Whether that might be an ideology or a desire or a set of desires, that lives in the middle and the gospel sort of fits in around it, bolted on to the top. And we hear the phrase, we want to be in the world but not of it. 
Perhaps, perhaps we have overemphasized the in part to such an extent that we just sort of blend in. So rather than being immersed in the kingdom of God, we're too immersed in the kingdoms of the world around us, putting our trust in the systems and the leaders, political or otherwise, or economic or, or whatever, that, that in order for those things to change the world and us for the better, and that's what we look to to see breakthrough. And rather than living like an exile in the culture that we find ourselves in, we assimilate instead. And I often think about this myself. I, I keep asking that question, am I radically different from the people around me? And the answer is, some ways, yes, I am, absolutely. And in other ways, definitely not enough. And perhaps this explains why I can sometimes have so many doubts. Maybe this is true of you as well. Doubting what I've come to believe. Not because it isn't true, but perhaps it hasn't, I'm not allowed it to penetrate deeply enough in order to be radically life-altering, changing how I think and how I act and how I process things and how I respond to things, how I treat people, how I think of myself, how I think of God and how I think of other people. Because when I see the church described in the Bible, I don't see a people blending in. I see a people standing out. And I think that's the call on us. We're in the middle of a series looking at some prophetic dreams that Zechariah had. Um, these are dreams about our coming king. And this king is unlike any other king in the world. And these dreams also contain visions of a kingdom that's coming. And this kingdom is totally unlike any kingdoms of the world. And roughly 500 years after Zechariah had these dreams and wrote them down, we see these prophetic dreams realised in the life, ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the fulfilment of these dreams. And today we're looking at Zechariah chapter 9. It should come up on, on the screen. We're looking at verses 9 to 13. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. So there are some promises in this verse, in these verses. We're promised a different kind of king, and we're promised a different kind of kingdom. And there's also some helpful stuff here about how we would live in response to being in that kingdom with that king. So let's look at what kind of king Jesus is and how he's different to other kings. So the Israelites, they, they were waiting for this king to come, the Messiah to come. And they certainly had hopes for what this king would look like. They'd been in exile. The whole world had been kind of just destroyed by the exile. And they're coming back. Not all the people have returned yet when Zechariah is writing this. And they're waiting for the Messiah king to restore them. This is what they're hoping for. 
And we see some of this in Zechariah's vision. It, it, the king, as they might have expected him to be, he is both righteous and victorious. And that's not a surprise, right? And not a surprise to the Israelites. Of course the king is going to stand on the side of justice. Of course he will stand on the side of the innocent and the oppressed. Of course he's going to stand on the side of those who have been faithful to God's word. And that's exactly what verse 9 tells us he will be. But the next part of the passage has a completely different tone because it talks about his humility. Here is the king, lowly and riding on a donkey. If you're an exiled Jew at this time wanting to return home, this is not what you're hoping for, is it? You want the king to crush the enemy. You want them to deal final blow to them so that you can then live in peace. You want your king to be riding on a chariot and swinging a sword, not riding on the back of a donkey. But this is what Zechariah sees, Jesus riding on a donkey. And we see this prophecy fulfilled on Palm Sunday when we see Jesus riding in, making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem before he is crucified. We see him riding on a donkey and it shows us again that he is a different type of king. So compare him to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar lived a few decades before Jesus. Everybody who um, was alive at the time Jesus was alive in the Roman Empire would have known exactly who Julius Caesar was. And when he came back from Rome, he conquered Gaul, and he came back uh, to Rome from Gaul, and there was a parade that lasted three days, displaying all of the things that he had captured, all the people he'd captured in chains and all the, the loot that he had taken. This was a, a display, a parade, to show what, what a man he was, what kind of king he was. But Jesus is nothing like Julius Caesar. I should go without saying. He's nothing like any leader who has ever lived or who lives today, or whoever will live. Because in Jesus, we see someone who's way more mighty and way more powerful than Julius Caesar. I mean, Julius Caesar can't speak the universe into being with his word, like, like Jesus can. And yet, he is humble. And not only is Jesus humble, he's just. He's incorruptible. He's wise. He's compassionate. He's honest. And, you know, there are leaders that display some of these things, right? Of course, you know. Um, and some who display some of these things really well. But no one, no one does these things perfectly. No one matches the standard that Jesus matches. But we need these qualities, don't we? We need these qualities in our leaders. We've seen how ruinous a lack of honesty and integrity can be in those that lead. We see that in, in politics, we see that in business, we see it in churches. We see now that as things are getting tougher for people in our country and the poorest are being hit the hardest by that, we see the value of compassion, right? We need our leaders to be compassionate on those who are worse off than them. We need wisdom and we need integrity. But, you know, none of the leaders can match Jesus in these things. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be engaged with democracy and we should abstain from voting. If that's what you want to do, that's fine, but that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm saying is we can't just put our trust in this to change the world. When we look at the reality of what's happening in our country, and there are some scary things happening in our country and in the world around us, we can't just put our trust in Liz Truss 
or Keir Starmer or Ed Davey. We have to put our trust in Jesus. We need to put our trust in a different kind of king, one who is perfect, one who won't let us down. What is able to actually change the world? And the one that we need to be telling people to look up to. See, I hear a lot of people talk about being politically homeless, and I, I feel the same way. And maybe, maybe as Christians, we ought to feel politically homeless, right? Because if you look at the manifestos of every political party across the spectrum, none of them are really what's in God's manifesto of what the world should look like. And the truth is, I don't support any party, or cause, or protest, or movement, quite like I support and long for the desire to see our righteous king reigning on earth, and his kingdom being brought to people. Uh, Jared C. Wilson, who's a Baptist minister in Missouri, um, said this on Twitter recently, which I, think, which I think really sums it up. He says, if you feel politically homeless, take heart. You're feeling the tug of your heavenly citizenship. The normality of feeling like aliens and exiles in this world. That's what we are. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We're citizens of a new place. We are exiles here. We should feel that way. So I say we're exiles, we're we're citizens of a new kingdom. What does that kingdom look like? What does this different kind of kingdom look like? Well, history, history is a story of empires and kingdoms. That, that rise and fall. It's a very simplistic explanation, but I did a history degree, so I can say that on authority, <laughs> that that is true. There's something that all these empires have in common. They were all built on and sustained by violence, oppression, and war. You do not take over another country without raising a sword or dropping some bombs on them. And you don't keep occupied people in line without ruling with fear. Do as we say and you'll be okay. And if you don't, there's going to be a problem for you. And the first verse, the first uh, eight verses of our chapter today, um, which we're not read out because of of time, um, they're about Alexander the Great, who was the, um, the Greek um, he was a Greek and he led a great empire that comes after the time of Zechariah is written. And Alexander will eventually conquer all the enemies that have stood against Israel. Um, and he acts as God's judgment, actually, against those, those countries for what they have done to the Israelites. And um, Zechariah prophesies his coming and prophesies what's going to happen. And he was given the name the Great, Alexander the Great, because he never lost a battle. It's impressive. It is impressive. But Alexander was also a violent despot. And I'm not sure I'd call someone who was a violent despot great. Someone who sought to deify himself and have himself worshipped as a god is not great. That's his kingdom. And it is contrasted to the kingdom of God where we see a different kind of kingdom being described, one that is totally unlike Alexander the Great's, a kingdom that will be prosperous. Verse 12 says that the people of God will have twice as much restored to them as they lost. It's a kingdom that will be expanding. Verse 10 says that the rule and reach of this kingdom will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. Now, Alexander's kingdom was was prosperous and expanding. So was the, the... the empire of Genghis Khan, so was a British empire. 
But here's where things get a little bit different. The overarching theme of this kingdom is peace. Verse 10 says that peace will be proclaimed to the nations, that the chariots and the war horses will no longer be needed, that the battle bow will be broken. It's not a kingdom like any human kingdom or empire that's built on, grown by and sustained by violence or dehumanising people or oppressing enemies. It is a kingdom where peace reigns. And this peace reigns not because one side has been defeated, subdued and enslaved by the other, but by the uniting of two to one. The peace that Zechariah sees here ultimately is fulfilled in the uniting of the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, to the people who are not which is the Gentiles, which is us. Ephesians 2 describes this and tells us that in this new kingdom, the two groups are now one and that the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between the two people has been destroyed and is gone forever. And there's lots of dividing walls of hostility in the world today, isn't there? And we need to see them broken. And the church is to represent what this looks like, a place where there is no dividing walls place where the dividing wall of hostility between different people is broken, where people from different backgrounds and races and ethnicities and social views of the world are together as family in one family. And in the same way as uh, this kingdom is seen the breaking down of barriers between people, it's also more importantly seen the breaking down of the walls between people and God. Meaning that we had turned away from God. The people had turned away from God. The reason why the Israelites were in exile was because they had turned away from him. And the evidence of our turning away from God is seen in the news, isn't it? We, we don't need to convince ourselves that there's a problem with the human condition. But now, because of this coming kingdom, we can be united to God. And it's not by the wielding of the sword. In fact, it's the opposite. It was achieved in one body, the body of Jesus, which didn't wield a sword but was pierced by one instead. Where Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar expanded their kingdoms by force, this kingdom of God is expanded by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what brings us true peace. Peace between people, peace between people groups, and peace between us and God himself. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And this is, we are the representatives of this kingdom on earth. So what does it look like to live in this? What's our response? How do we live in light of being in this kingdom? Well, I'll I'll answer that question by asking a question. What is the most repeated command in the Bible? It's actually, be joyful in the Lord. It's, we're told this in many different ways. It's maybe saying praise the Lord or rejoice or give thanks or do not fear. But it's actually, be happy in God. Have joy in the Lord. And our passage begins with this command, rejoice greatly. Because this king is coming and he's going to usher in a whole new kingdom of peace. Because what God wants for us is to be deeply and perfectly happy in him. As David says in Psalm 37, we need to take delight in the Lord. And I know there are challenges with joy, right? There are two main challenges with joy. One is that we're just too easily pleased. 
C.S. Lewis wrote um, possibly one of the great sermons, maybe the greatest sermon of the 20th century, which is called The The Weight of Glory. And he said it in this way. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This was true of the Israelites. They, they turned to foreign gods. They kept doing it. The Old Testament story is this cyclical nature of the Israelites turning away from God and then turning back to him. And it's true of us. It's true of us. It, it's too often we look for satisfaction in the wrong things, in things that are not God. And, and this looks back to what I said at the start about the, the, the gospel needing to penetrate us in our innermost being so that we are radically different from the world around us in how we think, in what we do, and what we desire. That we desire him and his kingdom more than anything else. So that the gospel is at the centre of our very being and everything else that we do, our jobs, our families, our friendships, our relationships, just revolves around that. And secondly, that there are times when joy is hard. Circumstances arise all the time and it can make it seem impossible to have joy. But the joy that we have in the Lord, the joy of taking delight in him, is is something that is unconnected to our circumstances. It's a new hope. This hope that can produce a joy in us, that, that God can sustain us in even the most difficult and painful places. That's what it means when, when Zechariah says about being prisoners of hope. That's what having joy in the Lord means. It's not to ignore suffering and to say it's not real. It's not to put a, a brave face on it or to lie and say I'm fine when I'm not. But to know and understand that there is something deeper, a deep sustaining hope that we can cling to in every situation. It's what keeps us going in the midst of suffering. And this hope is that our king is coming. And we are part of his great kingdom. And that nothing can take that away from us. We could all do with a bit more joy, couldn't we? I know I could. Um, there's a, I'm in a Facebook group um, where people in the Heatons thrift taps that they no longer want anymore to other people. And even in something so innocent, people just get grouchy with each other. It's like someone was saying, oh, maybe it's the heat. It's a bit worse at the moment because of the heat. And I'm like, man, <laughs> come on. You need the joy of the Lord. Maybe you wouldn't be irritable in the heat if you had the joy of the Lord. When we have the joy of the Lord in us, it, it uh, enables us. That joy rises above every circumstance and you know we kind of don't think of this as a command do we 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 kind of think about commands in the bible as do not do certain things it's prohibition of of certain behaviors but this is a command and it's commanded to us quite a lot and we ought to take it seriously as seriously as we take any command to not sin and the byproducts of being joyful in the lord when we're full of his joy, it means that certain things happen to us that means that we're different. It means that we can be humble, like Jesus was humble. Even when other people around us are not. 
It means that we can be, and humility allows us to be obedient to God's will in our lives because we lay aside our own pride and our own agendas to put him first. Being full of the joy of the Lord means that we can give generously, even in the midst of really difficult economic circumstances. We can be generous givers. Mm. Being full of the joy of the Lord means that we can lead people in the way that Jesus did. You know, Jesus is our example of leadership. There's loads of books out there in business about how to be a great leader. None of them talk about how great a leader Jesus was. He was better than all of them. And his leadership was servant-hearted, laying his life down for others. And we need to be doing the same, whether that's in our work, in our families, in church. The model for how we lead people is Jesus and how he acted and treated people. Being full of the joy of the Lord means that we can think the best of people. Which is very cynical, aren't we, in England? I don't think it's a godly trait. And I say that as someone who can, be, can really suffer from the affliction of cynicism. This is the world where divisive discourse rises to the top. The scum of divisive discourse rises to the top. That's what gets clicks. We need to be the opposite. We need to be thinking the best of people, not building straw men of other people that might disagree with us to knock them down but to be thinking the best of people, seeing Jesus in other people. Being full of the joy of the Lord means that we can have confidence in the future. You know, there's a lot of fatalism. I've maybe fueled that this morning by some of the things that I've said. People are very fatalistic about the future. We don't need to be, because we have, we know what's coming next. We know that Jesus is going to return. We know that our futures are secure in him, in his everlasting kingdom. We know that nothing can snatch us from his hand. The joy of the Lord allows us to be joyful, right? Even when circumstances in our lives are really hard. Being full of the joy of the Lord means that we can know that he is enough. Regardless of my performance... I, even this morning, I, I kind of had another realisation about this. I get nervous before, before preaching, right? And you kind of start thinking, I hope it goes well. And I just felt this voice say, what, what does going well look like, Andy? Does it mean that you don't say anything silly? Does it mean people come up to you at the end and say, well done? Does it mean something else happens? And I was kind of going through these metrics in my head and thinking, none of those are the metrics by which God judges my performance and whether God is pleased with me or not. I need to be freed from performance anxiety and actually be resting in the fact that he is enough. Even if, and I'm knowing that I'm not. And we can do all this because we know that we have Jesus as our king and we can live in his kingdom, a different kind of kingdom where peace and unity reigns.